Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. The phrase Russian spies conjures up all sorts of Cold War thrills. Hidden cameras, dastardly poisons, the TV show The Americans, John le Carré. But from the 17th to the 19th century, the best Russian spies were actually pencil-pushing bureaucrats along the long border with China. They're the subject of Georgetown historian Gregory Afiniganev's new book, Spies and Scholars. These career apparatchiks succeeded at gathering intelligence on the Qing dynasty from their quotidian positions at diplomatic offices, religious missions, and frontier outposts, although they never seemed to get much credit for their work. The irony is that while the intelligence they shared brought Russia greater prestige among European powers, these encounters with European ideals of intellectualism also radically changed what kind of intelligence was considered worthwhile. Greg Afiniganev joins us to talk about the implications of this seismic shift in the position of knowledge and its makers in Russian society. Thanks for talking to me, Greg. Thank you so much for having me, Stephanie. So uh, in the interest of full disclosure, we are friends. And I distinctly remember the first time I learned that you knew how to read Manchu, which I didn't even realize was a language and not just a mustache style. It was a party. Someone was wearing a T-shirt with a bunch of different scripts on it. And you were like, this looks like Manchu. And I didn't ask at the time, and I regret it. But now your book is out, so I have another chance. How on earth did you get into reading Manchu? Uh, it's it's interesting because it's really a, a language that until very recently was pretty much dead. Uh, even though, you know, in the 17th century, it was spoken by a couple of million people at least. Um, essentially, I was at Harvard, and Harvard is a great place to study inter-Asian stuff in general. And I got drawn into the orbit of some historians who really emphasized the role of the Manchu factor in Chinese history. And they offered a Manchu language class, which is one of the only ones in the country. And I started taking it. And my Manchu has like degraded substantially since then because I don't have anyone to communicate with in it. Um, but it was such a great experience because Manchu is a really unique language. Uh, one of the things it has is this whole culture of automatopoeias, like the sound of rustling leaves under your feet in autumn and stuff, like, or like the sound of birds looking for one another or the sound of arrows whistling by. Like, Manchu has words for all of that, which I just found incredibly charming. 
It's so romantic. Is that like what drew you to this particular period? Well, I had started grad school thinking I was going to study the intellectual history of 18th century Russia. And when I started studying it, I realized that there was way less intellectual history than I expected to find. And I was, I sort of went through this period of crisis where I was like, what the hell am I doing here? Uh, and then I went to the archives of the Academy of Sciences, which is this like small closet sized room in St. Petersburg, which contains all of these massive old documents. And I stumbled on this folder of letters from Jesuits in Beijing to the Academy of Sciences in St. Petersburg. And these Beijing Jesuits, they, they really um, had this massive correspondence over the course of decades with the Russians. And I was like, I'd never heard of any of this. And I started digging into it. And it turned out that it wasn't just the Jesuits, that it was this whole intellectual infrastructure of spies and scholars, as the book refers to, uh, linking the two countries together. And um, I had actually wanted originally to be a historian of China a long time ago because my dad had given me this Soviet translation of a classic Chinese novel, The Romance of the Three Kingdoms. And I was so into that novel that I, I really thought, okay, this is, this is going to be my topic. But Russian was a lot easier. I mean, because I was born speaking it. Well, now you've married the two in covering both the Russian and Chinese empires in a way. Um, but, you know, this period that you're covering, the 17th to the 19th centuries, is a lot of centuries, for one. And it's also a period where the idea of empire itself was changing a lot. So how did these two powers, the Russian and Chinese empires, change over that period in relation to each other, in relation to the world? Uh, yeah. So in the 17th century, the Qing dynasty was was established, right? And it was uh, what's known as a conquest dynasty. In other words, it didn't come from within China, it came from outside, from what's we, what we call Manchuria now, but at the time was known as Tartary in the West. And uh, the Manchus in the 17th and 18th century were at the height of their power. It was a flourishing state. They had uh, a massive army that they used to expand and conquer areas like Xinjiang and Tibet. And they, they were really admired, including by European visitors. Um, and the Russian Empire was also going through a period of flourishing. Um, and what the Russians were doing was essentially adopting Western technology, Western military organization, building one of the most powerful armies in Europe. But interestingly, when the two empires came together, there wasn't this massive conflict. It was more of a kind of Cold War because the northern frontier in the Chinese case or the, the southern frontier in the Russian case was not their main priority. The real stuff was going on elsewhere. So it, they were changing because in a way the imperial competition was sort of ramping up elsewhere. And as, as Russia got more powerful, it started to see itself as competing with countries like Britain and France and the United States, rather than with, for example, the Ottoman Empire uh, and the Persian Empire and, and China as well. And so gradually China became kind of the object of imperial competition rather than another partner in the competition. Uh, so over the course of that two centuries, China kind of retreated onto the defensive. And as the British, for example, fought the Opium Wars to conquer areas like Hong Kong, uh, it very much entered this period of crisis. So, so that's kind of the end of my book is the Treaty of Beijing in 1860, which is where Russia gains a whole lot of territory in the north and joins some of the other European powers in, in slicing off chunks of the, of the Chinese pie for itself. But even before that period of expansion for Russia, um, I guess, and subtraction for China, like these are both pretty multi-ethnic states with this like very amorphous kind of squiggly border between the two of them. And they're both sort of 
wrestling with a lot of questions of national identity, ethnic identity, etc. And you point out that the Buryats and the Mongols actually shared a common faith and a language and existed on either side of that line. Um, and Evinki hunters, for instance, just crossed the borders of Manchuria back and forth. So how did that play in to, you know, the project of spies and scholars during this imperial period? Well, it's interesting because it was both a source of constant danger in the sense that, uh, you know, a huge amount of the diplomatic correspondence between Russia and China had to do with uh, who crossed over the border and stole someone else's cattle. And they would literally be like inspectors trying to figure out, like, which way were the cattle's hooves pointed as they walked? Were they going north or were they going south? And then they would have to figure out, like, who owed who restitution. Um, And I mean, at one point, the two countries almost went to war because... Uh, there was a, a Chinese merchant who was attacked by a Buryat gang, uh, and the Russians refused to execute them. They sent them to hard labor instead, because technically capital punishment had been abolished in the Russian Empire. Um, and so it produced this massive crisis. There were, like, cannons being massed at the border and stuff. So it, it was very much about kind of negotiating and, and controlling the movement of these populations. But at the same time, it was a real opportunity, because for the Russians, especially in the mid-18th century, they really started to think of uh, pilgrims, for example, going to the Mongol capital of what they called Urga um, to visit the local religious leader, the Jibzundamba Hutuktu. Um, so they saw these things like pilgrimages and other forms of spiritual and material exchange as opportunities to spy and opportunities to potentially even get the Mongols to defect uh, from China and join the Russians instead, which negotiations for that went pretty far. Um, and there's even some speculation by historians that the the Qing had the Jepsum Dembo Hutuktu of the time assassinated and then insisted that when he was reincarnated, you know, because he was like the Dalai Lama, he's sort of a reincarnation, that he could only be reincarnated in China as opposed to in Mongolia because they were so worried about the, the loyalty of the Mongols uh, to the Qing state. Wow. I mean, that wasn't the only thing they were worried about, though, right? I mean, your fundamental thesis is that spies and scholars were part of the same project, which is creating knowledge. And one of those goals, it sounds like, was getting the Mongols to defect. But were there other goals? Like, what were the other things they were creating knowledge about? Yeah. So my argument is that the way that different states produce knowledge is organized differently over time. And that what we think of as knowledge typically, what historians study as intellectual history, is typically you know, it's produced by people who have names like Plato or Aquinas or something. And those people have a reputation. They have a set of texts that people study. And uh, you know exactly what you're dealing with when you're dealing with, let's say, the works of Kant or somebody. But there's also, in, in the Russian Empire especially, there was a huge amount of knowledge that was produced by these kind of like anonymous uh, bureaucrats working in, in offices. And what they were producing was primarily not theoretical knowledge, it was primarily what I call intelligence. In other words, information that was much more practical and much more immediate, but often went in, into quite great detail about geography or about ethnic relations, uh, about religion and so forth. Um, but it wasn't designed to create kind of like published works that would then circulate to other scholars. It was designed for internal use. And the way that those regimes were organized, it really had a lot to do with what the state saw itself as trying to do. So this kind of espionage and intelligence was really important in the 18th century because what the Russian state was trying to do was substitute for the fact that it didn't have much of an army on the Siberian frontier, and it was trying to kind of use spies as a replacement for that kind of power. The idea was that if you could just sort of infiltrate the Chinese borders, it would 
it would sort of allow Russia to expand gradually at Qing expense without triggering this massive war that would reveal just how weak Russia's presence on that frontier really was. But then what happens later is, especially in the late 18th, early 19th century, is that there's a shift to a new kind of knowledge regime where what's counted as important is competing with other European powers. And what other European powers are starting to value is academic knowledge, precisely the kind of stuff like Kantar Aquinas that we recognize as intellectual history. So Russians begin to forget what they learned in the 18th century, all of this intelligence that they produced, and recreate their knowledge regime on the basis of uh, university-based scholarship, on the basis of academic treatises, specialized uh, kind of intellectual production. Um, and that's much more recognizable as what we think of as Orientalist knowledge um, in the sense of something that's much more formal and academic rather than based in, in the immediate needs of an intelligence state. Yeah, I mean, those frameworks are really different. And it is cool that it, you know, evolved over time. But I'm having a little bit of trouble picturing exactly like the life of a Russian spy circa 1801. Um, you know, my mental film of a spy movie doesn't quite go that far back. So who would a spy par excellence from this period be? And what would that person's life be like spying for this intelligence project of the Russian Empire? So, yeah, so for me, the paradigmatic Russian spy is this guy, Vasily Gumnov. Uh, I know that he was active on the frontier uh, between 1744 and like 1803 or something. So just a huge amount of time. And in that time, his official role is something like frontier commissioner. So he would ride back and forth along the border and sort of talk to people stationed on the frontier to make sure everything was going okay. But in the process, he established all these connections. And so you know, you, you read his journals, he, he says, I visited my friend, and then he names some Mongol, and then he visited this other Mongol. And all of these friendships that he made, including not just with Mongols, but with Chinese people and with Jesuits in Beijing as well, um, he used those friendships to gain information about things like the attempts of Europeans to send embassies to China, or the military movements of the Qing state in the north. Um, and so he used this sort of his skills as a as someone who was very well versed in, in Mongol, who spoke it almost like a native language, uh, to sort of navigate between the two frontiers and make use of the fact that it was so porous. Um, so that's that's a kind of a paradigmatic spy. That's like a, a guy who um, lives his whole life on the frontier and never really gets recognized for it. You know, he's like this, he remains, as far as people in St. Petersburg are concerned, this just sort of totally anonymous bureaucrat whose unique skills are not really all that appreciated because... All he's doing is producing this very locally specific kind of knowledge. Poor guy. Yeah, I know. It was a, lo a lot of this book ends up being about people with academic or other intellectual careers who just get totally screwed over by the system. Oh. <laughs> so, okay. It sounds like all of his papers and everything, you know, sort of contributed locally, was useful, sort of. Um, and you've, you know, dived in and, you know, resurrected it in the archives. Was it shoved aside by the scholars who came later? I mean, I know you write about um, this guy, Ian Kiev Bichurin, for example. You know, he opens your book. He's like the scholar par excellence. Were people like him referencing the stuff that Agumnov was producing or were they just like, forget him, not useful anymore? Yeah. So this is one of the fascinating things that I kind of discovered in the course of my research is that as these knowledge regimes change, your standards for what counts as good knowledge changes as well. And so even though the Russians had probably more skilled Mongol speakers and as many skilled Chinese speakers as any state in the world aside from China, 
they suddenly decided that it was like all very primitive and useless. And Bichurin, he was this very controversial figure. You know, he was appointed to head a Russian ecclesiastical mission in Beijing. But before that, he had been imprisoned in a monastery. Uh, he had previously been the head of, of a monastery, but he snuck his girlfriend into the monastery disguised as a young monk. And when the other monks discovered that she was there, they just basically started this massive riot and drove him out of the monastery. Um, so, so this Russian ambassador rescued him from his imprisonment and uh, appointed him to head this mission, which, where he promptly like was recorded, you know, hiring sex workers from all over Beijing and having these massive orgies and stuff like that. But then when he got back to Russia, he was he was tried for all kinds of violations. But interestingly, in the 10 years after that, he became the sort of main representative of Russian scholarship about China. And it was because he knew how to, well, he knew his French, he knew how to appeal to the growing interest in China among European scholars. He published, you know, some really important works on Central Asia and the culture of Northern China in a lot of ways. So he managed to convert his very controversial career into a sort of representation of what would Russian scholarship look like if we did it the right way. Um, but interestingly, he always complained that uh, people always forgot about how important Russian scholarship was, even though he was one of the people who was kind of most instrumental in that forgetting, because he was the one who said, well, no, my model of scholarship is is more important. It's more intellectually legitimate than whatever we were producing before. It's this sort of paradox where you at the same time forget, but at the same time, you're always kind of mourning the fact that you're not recognized for the work you've already done. Was his methodology substantially different from Igumnov's, for example, or was it just that the presentation and the audience for what he was writing had changed? I think it's more the latter. I mean, basically, he had been charged with several missions, uh, espionage-type missions. So, for example, getting some of his people to paint views of strategic buildings in the capital and gathering, you know, information about epidemics and stuff like that. But he also, he wrote a lot of treatises that are more abstract, much more focused on linguistic questions, like what was the origin of um, this particular people in Central Asia? You know, what kind of ancient sources can we use to, to determine that? Um, so he knew very well how to appeal to an audience of people who, who felt that the real questions that were worth asking were rooted in history rather than in the present. Uh, and that's how he made his reputation. Okay. So, I mean, like, intelligence versus knowledge. I mean, it sounds like these two, at least in the story that you're telling, are somewhat at odds with one another as far as knowledge regimes go, as you describe them, and the institutions that they're in. I mean, how have you seen that conflict play out over the course of, like, intellectual history? I think, for me, knowledge is a kind of commodity, right? And so that means that somebody's producing it and somebody is buying it. And for us, it's very natural to think of knowledge in terms of a market. Like, you know, I'm a would-be intellectual, so I have to like produce this book and get that book to sell, get other people to write reviews of it, get interviews on a podcast, stuff like that, right? Um, and that kind of helps me make my career, so I have this like career attached to a particular field of expertise. And for, for many of us, that's just sort of the default way we think of knowledge. But actually, in many places and in many times, such as in the Russian Empire in the 18th century, that wasn't how it worked at all. Because you weren't trying to appeal to a broad public, you were appealing essentially to your boss. And you were trying to make a case that the specific, very narrowly targeted knowledge that you were producing was going to be immediately useful in a strategic sense uh, to somebody whose main concern wasn't the advancement of human 
progress, it was the strategic advantage of the Russian Empire in a particular moment. So it's really tempting to think of the transition from intelligence to scholarship as being one of progress, like the knowledge is getting more sophisticated. But actually, so one of the questions that scholars become obsessed with in the early 19th century is whether Buddha and Jesus were the same person. So a lot of the like new scholarship becomes dedicated to this question. And of course, it's like complete BS. I mean, there's no, it was a popular hypothesis, but it was one without any foundation whatsoever. Uh, and in some ways, the kinds of questions that people were asking a few decades earlier about, let's say, the ethnic makeup of the Qing dynasty is much more durable and interesting than the debates about whether Buddha and Jesus were the same person. Because it's, it's really a matter of for a system that is oriented towards questions that everyone is interested in. And those questions are not always very lasting or very valuable. What a dumb question to be trendy. <laughs> and a lot of it became also very imperialist, right? Because the scholarship that emerged in the 19th century was very much focused on why is China so backward? Why is China a society that's not capable of industrializing? And all of these discourses, which ultimately serve to justify imperial conquest. Yeah, I mean, it is funny how it goes from like, explicitly imperialist and explicitly for state power when they were spying on China and had this like intelligence framework. But ironically, the quality of the scholarship itself became more in service of empire and the project of colonialism later once we got, you know, more academic about it. Absolutely. That's a really fantastic point. And I think I think that is one of the central ironies of the project is that in some ways, when the Russians were more honest about what they were doing, they were doing better work, uh, or at least work that was like more responsive to what was actually going on on the ground instead of this sort of colonial distortion. So different knowledge regimes have very different rules for who gets to succeed and who gets to fail. And I think typically intellectual historians operate very much within the sort of co commercialized marketplace of knowledge kind of framework. And it's very rare that we think our way outside of that and, and think what it could look like to not have something like that. And I'm not saying, of course, that the Russian model in the 18th century was any better, but it does help us think, well, what if there were other ways to organize knowledge that that don't depend so much on making your own individual reputation, for example? Yeah, neither of these models sound particularly appealing the way you've described them. Like, <laughs> I have to write this book for my boss versus, like, I have to write a book to get tenure. Um, <laughs> so, like, what do you see as a potential, you know, way of conceiving of knowledge that would perhaps be more helpful for us as a society and as individuals? I think the more we could separate knowledge from sort of the material rewards that accrue to somebody who's good at it, and the more we sort of recognize that expertise can come in many forms and doesn't necessarily need to be the, the kind of stuff that's most trendy or the most uh, like responsive to a particular current debate. I think there's there's a lot of good in the, in the way that knowledge can serve a common good or even like can be diverse enough to serve a variety of different common goods, right? Um, and I think the more we can build a system where that's not both dependent on your position in the social hierarchy and not dependent on your need to earn a crust of bread, uh, I think that's the system that we need. Looking at the way that these people's careers were warped by their need to survive uh, in the Russian Empire, uh, to me really drove home just how inequitable these hierarchies are. And I really, I, a lot of these people I read about and you know, for example, one guy who was maybe the best expert on Manchu in the world uh, when he was alive, certainly among the top five uh, non-Qing experts on Manchu, he basically said that he didn't want his son to continue in his footsteps because 
it's just way too difficult. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of tragic because he died at the age of something like 45. He had a very hard life. And just thinking about how much of that talent was wasted because he had to make his way in a highly hostile economic and political world um, makes me think about people who are contingent scholars who are suffering from the same thing right now. That isn't just uh, knowledge producers, of course. I mean, we should have a society where everyone is free from the need to, to work for a living. But I experience it as a knowledge producer myself most acutely in my own case. But of course, it should apply to everybody. We've got links in the show notes to Greg Afinaginev's new book, Spies and Scholars, Chinese Secrets and Imperial Russia's Quest for World Power. There's also a link to the Manchu Studies Group in case you are dying to learn Manchu, as well as a couple maps and illustrations from the period to help you visualize just what life along the Sino-Russian border was like. This is our last new episode of the season. We'll be back next week with a special Christmas rerun with new interviews in January. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.